Kate Save is an incredible Australian entrepreneur, practicing dietitian, and exercise physiologist, and the founder of several businesses, including the award-winning multi-million dollar BeFit Foods Empire. This business catapulted her onto the public stage after her appearance on reality TV show Shark Tank. But Shark Tank was a double-edged sword, which connected her with influential business mentor and Boost Juice founder Janine Ellis, but it also exposed her to the public where her credibility was attacked, despite her decades of clinical experience and numerous qualifications. In this episode of Human Cogs, Kate talks to us about what it feels like to be a young female founder at the helm of a company that experienced explosive 1,500% growth overnight. She also talks about her everyday mantra to finish fourth, not first, and what it was really like to grow up feeling poor and how that has shaped the woman and the mother she is today. Here's Kate. Many of our listeners will be aware of BeFit Foods after you appeared on TV show Shark Tank, where Boost Juice founder Janine Alice stepped in to mentor you. However, there's no such thing as overnight success. So, Kate, tell us, what experiences led you to that moment? Oh, I guess it was working on a business for quite a few years and really just, you know, feeling like the wheels are going round, but we're never getting our head above water. So, For me, that experience was about finding someone who could help take this idea to the next level. And I knew that I had the clinical smarts to develop the program, but I didn't have the business smarts to really understand how you make a business profitable. My practice was heavily based around giving the very best service I could and it becomes, you know, a, a reflection of you. But when it's a product, you can make the very best product, which is what I thought we did well. But how you actually make that into a viable or profitable business has so many other factors that I just didn't understand. And I needed someone who'd done that before. They they were inspired by a concept. And I know Janine, um, I guess she set out her vision was to um, get to 90% of Australian households and to help Australians actually consume their five and two or their seven serves of fruit and veggies a day. And that was her goal. And our goal was very similar in that we want to change the health of Australians and we want to help them to actually eat what they need to eat to improve their health and, you know, uh, stop this diabetes epidemic that seems to be ever-evolving. Janine's a formidable entrepreneur and has had a phenomenal impact on Australians with, uh, with Boost Juice and her other initiatives. I'm just tapping into what you said about you had the clinical smarts and and then had to kind of wrap the business model around it. Now, I'm out of my remit here. I'm not a clinician. I'm an entrepreneur and I have other things that I push into, but I would like some definitions up front if you don't mind. So you're a dietitian and an exercise physiologist. What does that mean and how does that differ from, say, a nutritionist? Yeah, with the exercise physiology, it's really learning the anatomy and physiology of the body and then taking it to the next level to understand how that works with the human metabolism. And I went on after my exercise physiology degree to do another master's and uh, that master's of clinical exercise physiology really tackled a lot more of the um, more specialised areas. So certainly looking at Um, neurophysiology and the brain's reactions to exercise and um, I think that's an area that really interested me because of the potential for neuroplasticity there and growing new brain cells and 
you know, exercise has these abilities to do things to the mind that no drug on the planet has just yet. Mm. And, um, and who knows if they'll ever be able to create it. And nutrition has those same benefits or properties that it can change the human body from the inside out that no single food on the planet or no supplement will probably ever be able to do. So you're obviously a lifelong learner, very passionate about your craft and continuing to learn and upskill. When you reflect back on your 17-year-old self, what was it that drew you to dietetics and exercise physiology? So from the age of about two, I was in and out of hospital until the age of eight with these chronic um, stomach pains and had all the testing done that they had back there, but they just weren't as good as they are now. They never found anything. And my grandfather, who would take me to all of these tests and different specialists, um, died at that stage. And my parents felt pretty helpless because nothing had ever been found. And we actually kept getting, or they kept getting told that I had abdominal migraine growing syndrome, which was basically like a tummy ache that was an excuse for not going to school or something like that. And the funny thing was I didn't miss a day of school uh, hardly in my life. I think even when I was violently ill, I still went to school. Not that that would be allowed these days. Um, So that wasn't actually what was going on. And it wasn't until I was 18, 19 that I guess I was driving a lot. And when I'd get these chronic tummy pains, I'd have to pull over on the side of the road until someone got me an ambulance or I somehow got to hospital and they could, you know, sort it out for me. And usually that just meant giving me an injection of something to put me to sleep. And um, then, you know, a couple of days later, I'd start to feel better. And I I thought, I'm going to investigate this further. And that sparked my interest in nutrition. I always cared about what I ate because I was worried of being sick. Just reflecting on what you've said is a very powerful story of what led you through your own lived experience to working in dietetics. I wonder what you think the role between emotion is and our physical health and has anxiety played a role in your own personal story? From a young age, I guess, having this illness I I just got used to it being around so I guess looking back maybe there was some nervousness about getting sick but I felt empowered enough that you know I owned my condition because the doctors didn't want to that I wasn't really anxious about it and I know a lot of people back certainly back then 20 years ago that were suffering from anxiety and I couldn't understand it because I hadn't had it myself and I think it had something, from what I could understand, to do with the feeling of losing control. And I felt like I had control most of the time. And I guess it's only in the more recent years, probably the last few years, ever since my business, Beefy Food, was on Shark Tank and it grew exponentially. So it grew 1,500% overnight and from a team of five to 63 in four weeks that I actually learnt what anxiety was. Prior to that, I really, I didn't know what it was. And to me, that anxiety is just when I have a feeling of being out of control and that I don't know how to regain control. Mm. Kate, um, some of my work is across the startup and um, 
innovation ecosystem. And so I get to chat to stacks of founders and I founded a few companies myself. I can hear um, in your story a really common story that comes up for founders where mental health um, often is last on that Maslow for them as their company grows and that real um, pressure they feel to scale. Um, so what you've experienced is both success and then, the you know, the flip side of that, which is really complex for the founder and the visionary in a business. How do you manage that now, given you've felt the, the negative effects of that? I think the, the first thing that I do every day is actually exercise. I know for me, um, and this certainly was something I discovered when before I started basic food, I had my first child and at the time I had a gym and a diet, huge dietitian practice. We had 23 staff and after the first child, I thought I'll be back at work straight away and I literally, the same day I was in the labour suite was still working and I actually booked the room um, in the hospital where I work so I could work from my bed. And mm, okay. six months into that, I realised I actually was working 24-7 because during the night when I was getting up to feed, I was working because it was a quiet time. I knew the baby drift off to sleep and I realised I couldn't do it all. So I sold the gym part of that business. And I guess from that, I started to appreciate what it means to find that little bit of balance and to, that you are in control to take back control and sometimes you, you just need to let go of things as well. Kate, in that story, I, I suppose I've got um, two questions. One is, is it coming to that realisation that you can't, you just cannot possibly do it all because the needs in a fast-growing business are exponential? And so is it that you find other people to do those jobs for you or you recognise as the founder that you will put a hard stop um, yourself just on your personal um, activity? I've tried both. So I've tried to find the, the experts in the field to take over the areas where I'm not an expert. And that's really hard to admit at the start because you think you are an expert in your own business. But then as the business grows, you realise how many different areas of the business there actually are and you can't be an expert in all of them. So letting go and finding people that you trust to give those areas of the business to is highly valuable. Uh, and the second one in terms of letting go of some things or putting that hard stop in place, I'm getting better at that, but I think that is certainly an entrepreneur's trait is to say yes to everything and try and pull it off. And it's only really in the last year or two doing a lot of work on this that I'm finally saying no to a few things here or there. And, you know, it's, it's willpower is like a muscle and you've just got to really want to say no to things and keep practicing to get better at it. Yeah, and, and do the best thing for your business. Once it gets to a certain size, there's this founder syndrome thing that occurs where the, where the founder can actually inhibit that business if they're not going to release the baby to let it grow. And it sounds like you've done a really great job of transitioning yourself to enable your business to thrive. Yes. I, oh, look, I'm doing as best as I can at letting go of some of those areas. And, and I guess the other thing I found is sometimes you want to completely let go because it seems easier, but you also have to be across everything as a founder. So sometimes taking it to that next level where you give complete ownership to someone else and you trust that they have the knowledge and experience that you do isn't always the best way because like an individual, a business has individual traits and just because someone has been an expert and worked in another organisation and has the skill set doesn't mean that they have the experience and the learnings that you've had 
on your journey along the way. So I've realised that when I've hired a senior management team, which was only in the last year, I haven't always passed on my my previous learnings or my vision for the business as consistently as I did in the first five years of the business when I was with a more junior team because I was on the ground with them all the time. So everything I said, they were around me and it was heard and whether I was on the phone or in the storefront or in the factory or, you know, everything was very hands-on. So I think that vision was really strong and the learnings were there for everyone. But with a management team, I'm sitting on my own a lot of the time doing things that are not the day-to-day and that means that I've got a, a management team running those day-to-day things and without me being really well connected and sharing that vision and my experiences and my learnings with them, they can't possibly know my visions for the business. So that's something I've been working on this year. And yet if you take from that story that you need to shadow every new person that comes on board, then you're kind of defeating the purpose of handing the reins over to someone else. Absolutely, yes. So that combination of letting go but making sure you've got a platform to share your learnings and share your experiences so that the same mistakes aren't made twice and um, that was Janine, as my mentor has always said to me, it's okay to make mistakes, just don't make them twice. And um, another thing that she said is always ask for forgiveness rather than permission. So I tell my team that every day. I would rather them try and make the decisions on their own and, you know, really own those decisions. And if they make a mistake, that's fine, but they have to learn from it and not do it again. Again, So I'll always forgive the first time and they don't need to ask me. They can go and run with their ideas and if they don't work, just learn from it and do it differently next time. You've founded multiple companies. Um, you're incredibly successful. You received countless awards for your work, including Victorian Business of the Year in 2018, as well as being ranked number 29 in the AFR Fast Starters list. Where did your drive come from? Like, where does this huge entrepreneurial spirit come from? My parents, from a very young age, always threw us in the deep end, no matter what it was. And I was thinking about this just two nights ago and I laughed to myself at the thought of it. If there was a talent show on, you know, we had to get up and sing or dance or a drama school or this or that, I was quite an introvert as a, a child and my mum would throw me and my sister into those things all the time and they'd be at like the Rye Carnival, the Rosebud Carnival in front of all these people. And I always found myself... Um, being challenged and out of my comfort zone and I look back now and I think that's where I got some of the courage from that it was okay not to win and this is where my husband and I really differ he um, he always goes for first place and he won first place a lot of the time in his football career I always go for fourth place I don't like to be on the pedestal I like the white curly ribbon and I just like the acknowledgement that I, I nearly got there. I never look for first place. I have to interject because um, after some of the heartfelt and candid stories you've shared with us already today, you talked of, you know, breastfeeding and working at the same time. That doesn't sound like someone who's striving for fourth place. Um, oh, who knows? I don't know how to explain that one. <laughs> but in, in my own satisfaction, if I... I I actually pretty much gave up running for nine years. I'd just do casual running. And the last fun run I did was 
just before I was pregnant with my first child. So it was nine years ago. And I had a gap and I did my first fun run this year in January. I actually, I did the run and I thought the kids might come down with my husband. And then I was like, oh, actually don't. It might be embarrassing. Drove home afterwards. I thought, gosh, that felt good. I got a phone call on the Monday. I'd actually come second, but I had no idea. I couldn't possibly be good at that anymore. I think that for me was just acknowledgement again that if you just do your best, your very best, you feel proud regardless. I didn't need an award. I walked away from it going, that felt good and that was enough for me. And I think that's what I mean by never wanting or needing that first place. I just want to feel that I, I did the very best I could. And that's probably a message that you also got from your parents. Were they? Did they used to say things to you like you can do anything or just do your best or what? What was the messaging? What was the? What were the words that they used to share with you? Particularly my dad. He always hated his job, and he said to me, "No matter what you do, if you try hard at school, you can do anything you want to do." So. Um, just try it, yeah, do your best and you'll end up loving your life. You'll be able to choose anything you want to do. And so from a young age, I always knew I could be or do whatever I wanted to do. And my parents never had any money. My mum has a secondhand clothes shop and she's had it for 35 years. My dad's a mobile knife sharpener. And they, mum likes her clothes shop, but I mean, it, it certainly um, doesn't bring any money in. It's just something that she does. Um, because she really enjoys it. It's not, you know, it's not a, yeah, it's different to why other people work, I guess. And dad did have a big business job in his, you know, up until he was 40 or 50 and he became retrenched and then started the knife sharpening. He tried his own business. He gave it three years. It failed. We lost nearly everything except for our house. And that's when he, he started, he opened the newspaper and bought the first business that he saw in there, which was knife sharpening that he really had no idea about and he learned how to do it and he did it well. Yeah, and I think I just saw the grit that mum and dad put into, you know, mum worked six days a week, dad worked five days a week and they shared roles and responsibilities in the household too. So dad did all the cooking and the food shopping. My sister and I went with dad every Saturday to do the food shopping he did all the cooking and mum just went to work every day in her shop and she was the runaround person that did the school drop-offs and school pickups. And I think I just learned that if you you can make anything work and if you work hard enough, you can love what you do. What role did grief or loss or financial hardship play in your story then and now? When I was in grade six, I remember a kid saying to me, just because your family's rich, that's why you have a television or a VCR in your bedroom. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's good. They think we have money because we had no money. I'd only had secondhand clothes my entire life. I got my very first brand new piece of clothing in my birth for my birthday in grade six and it was a billabong jacket because I always used to get teased about being avocado girl because mum would give me avocados for school for lunch um or having secondhand clothes um or my dad having a um I need to choose a politically correct term here but it, a, a van that has a high roof on it that used to be used for transporting um you know, people to medical facilities. So I would always get teased about things like that. When this kid, because my, my dad gave me 
a TV and a VCR, which actually came from my big brother, I think, who was 10 years older than me. They thought that I was rich and I thought, oh, good, I'm finally not going to be teased about having the worst car, the worst clothes or something else again. So, Kate, how do you then balance with your own children now um, that that are growing up in a quite a different environment to what you did? How do you then balance that now with the choices you make about what you provide for them? It's funny. In the first couple of years with the kids, I gave them everything because I wanted to give them the things I never had. I never got toys during the year unless I went to my grandma's house um, during the school holidays and she'd give us a budget, we'd be able to buy a toy or unless it was our birthday. And I think we got about a $50 budget or something like that. Um, so I gave my kids everything very early and now I stopped doing that. I went, oh, hang on, this stops them actually wanting to wait for things, get excited about things, earn things um, and appreciate things. So, yeah, there's probably a few years of, spoiling and that was probably to fill my own you know gaps where I didn't have those things and now I'm very aware that my children know don't even ask mum don't ask her ever for things um if you really want something you can have it but you can save your money and you can wait until you have enough money and all year my girls have wanted one of these generation dolls and a friend said the other day, they're only $35, why don't you just get one? And I said, no, because the girls really want it, so they're going to wait for their birthday and their birthdays are August and September and with all this lockdown in Victoria, we were supposed to go on holidays and it's all been cancelled so because of the disappointment, I sort of said to them, well, maybe if we're allowed, we could sneak out and buy one of these dolls. So they got their dolls a month early. (laughs) (laughs) And the power of intergenerational messaging is alive and well in your family as it is in all of ours. I wonder what your dad says about your business. Uh, Mum and Dad's house is a shrine of all of my achievements. They have, and my sisters as well, every newspaper cutting, every certificate, every photo of our graduation and now all of the things that the kids have done, all of their art. My parents actually frame it and put it all around their house. It's an absolute shrine. They are they are so proud to the point where it actually makes my husband sick. He's like, oh, if they say that in front of other people, other people are not going to be comfortable about them <laughs> talking about you and your sister so much. And I, I'm like, I'm so used to it that I ignore it. I get embarrassed and I go, oh, shut up, mum and dad. Don't. And they're, oh, these are my babies. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm a fully grown adult and I have children myself now. I'm not their baby. Um, and that just happened last, well, a couple of weeks ago when we are allowed to go out for dinner in Victoria. <laughs> you are sharing with us some, some really candid insights as a businesswoman, um, as an entrepreneur, as a parent and just as a human. How how vulnerable do you think successful women can be in business? Oh, it depends. Yeah, that, that's a hard one. You've got to be prepared to get hurt if you're going to be vulnerable. Um, I've always spoken before I've chosen my words properly. I choose my words a little bit but not often enough and I find myself always feeling vulnerable and if you're going to live that way, you have to be prepared to be hurt. And I've been hurt a lot being vulnerable, but I think it builds resilience and it helps me to continue to be vulnerable. Um, there was certainly a couple of points after Shark Tank where I got really, really hurt by um, people in my industry 
just saying horrible, horrible things about um, discounting my credibility for going on a television show like Shark Tank. I couldn't possibly be a real dietitian and trying to flog something to people when in actual fact that the product I'm trying to sell is the thing I've built my whole life on, how I think it will change someone else's life and help them. And, you know, for the first six years of the business, our business was a charity. Every time someone bought food, we paid for it. And um, they they got the profit, they got the food, and we actually paid for it because we were running at such a loss. And I never saw that on Shark Tank, what the perception other people had of me. And um, when it all came back through social media, I actually banned myself, well, my best friend banned me from social media. And I spent the first four hours in my whole life not going to work and you know when I was younger it would have been the same as not going to school which I just never did because I was too hurt to show up and that was probably the hardest thing that I've ever felt really it makes me upset talking about it but um yeah I've learned to just not listen when it's not um helpful Mm. And it's partly, Kate, again, you know, founders and, and business leaders feel this. It's how much do you let in and how much do you listen to and how much do you let go uh, to make sure you've got your own compass for where you need to be? Yeah. What was most hurtful about that period and, and the emotion that's coming up for you now? Oh, um, take, take a breath. <laughs> um, it was definitely that they attacked my credibility as a dietitian. I knew that for the other degree I did, I did um, a graduate certificate in diabetes education because I was working with a lot of diabetic patients and I wanted to be able to talk to the endocrinologist and really understand not just the nutrition, the exercise, but what's going on with the medications and insulin in diabetes. And I knew that I'd worked really hard for 10 solid years of studying going to every conference, doing every course, every paper. Even this week I did another course. I did my MBA the year before. I'm constantly learning and I think the hurtful bit was it was all discredited because they thought that I was making money out of something and all of my qualifications, the work and the advocacy that I thought I was giving the dietitian community to let's actually do a real food program instead of supplements, bars, shakes, synthetic things, processed things, something that you actually can't make a lot of money on because you can't, food's not free. Someone has to grow it, transport it, cook it, chop it, prepare it. And I thought that I was um, going to do something good for the dietitian community, but there was a few people in the community that really thought that I was, um, I don't know, trying to take a shortcut and I just don't like that. My dad always told me that the long road is, is the only road to take. That long road, the hard road will always be worth it. So I felt like a cheat and that um, I hadn't learnt what I, I was doing. It, it also speaks to being a, a helping professional in, in the health space that if your intent and your hope is to help and impact the lives of others in positive ways, does that mean that you shouldn't be paid for it? Yeah, true, true. And, you know, if only I'd gotten said that on television that I wasn't paid for it. I actually didn't get paid for working in the business for the first three years. It was only once the business started to just 
you know, make that's the first tiny bit of profit that I could actually draw a wage. And I think, yeah, that that's why it hurts so much because it was actually not true. Mm, and people don't see all the hidden work that goes on, the incredible amount of discipline and commitment it takes behind the scenes when you're starting a business and the courage it takes for people to take an idea into action. And clearly you have done an unbelievable job of that multiple times. Kate, we all li- always like to end these conversations with asking our guest one question. And my question to you is, given you've met an incredible number of people in your journey so far and seen a spectrum of life and business experiences, who do you think is doing human well? I've got a, a perfect person. One of my very best friends from high school, she's an intensive care doctor. She's on the front line every day risking her life but also the, the you know, her family and she's in such a rock and a hard place between going to work, actually being face-to-face with these really ill people and in you know, positions where she told me the other day they had to intubate a patient and, you know, sputum and stuff going everywhere and this disease is so highly contagious and she was in this situation where she knew that if she walked away that she could help herself and her family but if she did that, that person would die and she, she constantly puts others before herself and you know, as a mother, she comes home from work and I hope she doesn't get upset about me saying this. She, you know, it's such a hard thing for her to go, I care about my family, number one, my husband, my children, but I actually have a duty of care to my patients. I, you know, find a, what's the, what's the word? What do you sign? Are you, <laughs> you know, as a doctor to say that you will. The Hippocratic Oath? Yeah. Yeah, that you will put the patient first. And she goes, I just, it's so conflicting, but she knows what she has to do and she'll just keep doing it. And I said to her, well, you know, don't be so hard on yourself and one day you'll be the person up there telling the stories of all the lives you saved. And, you know, I think I look at her as a hero. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 